Hello, my name is Thomas Prosser, and this is the Tom's Curiosity Shop blog and podcast. Recently on Tom's Curiosity Shop, I've written about the pace of social change, declining academic confidence in policy interventions, and appropriate policy responses. A few weeks ago, I asked whether such developments made conservatism more reasonable. The work of Edmund Burke is highly relevant to such themes, Writing at the time of the French Revolution, Burke doubted the wisdom of uprooting established institutions, arguing that the strength of institutions lies in their gradual development. I think that Burke is more relevant than ever. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jesse Norman MP about these issues. Jesse is one of the most impressive people in the British Parliament. The Conservative MP for Hereford and South Herefordshire since 2010 Jesse served as Financial Secretary to the Treasury between May 2019 and September 2021. In June this year, his explosive letter of no confidence in Boris Johnson made international headlines. Jesse also has excellent academic credentials. He holds a PhD from University College London and has written very well-received biographies of Edmund Burke and Adam Smith. Given his political and academic experience, Jesse was the perfect guest. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. And if you enjoy, please think about subscribing to Tom's Curiosity Shop. It's free. Hello, Jesse. It's great to have you with us today. Could I start by asking you why the modern politician should read Burke? Well, actually, for very good Burkean reasons. Burke thinks that you can't be a politician if all you're doing is focusing un- unreflectively on current events or the duties of the representative, however important those may be. He thinks that the Member of Parliament, the politician, is a philosopher in action and therefore has to be thinking about the principles of policy and of political activity alongside the tactics of how to make those policies happen. And this ability to flip between the different levels of saying things that support a policy, but also reflecting and acting if you're a minister, that those different levels, then that interplay is something uh, that is distinctive to a kind of Burkean view, because you can't be uh, successful if you aren't making political arguments that are based in principle as well as in advantage or interest. So that's really the Burkean view, but the more concrete reason is because he's one of the greatest thinkers and writers ever to have written about politics and political activity because he defines the ideas first of political parties in Western political discourse because he's the preeminent theorist of representative government and Uh, of institutions and their role within society and the body economic and the body politic. And so he is a fascinating person to read. And of course, he's historically incredibly significant person because he wasn't just uh, the great, as it were, um, theorist and thinker of the middle of the 18th century on politics. He was also a very active man of business, helping to set up the first proto-political party in Britain, the Rockingham Whigs, in 1765 to 6, 
and then they go into opposition and then bringing them back in 1782 as an opposition become government, as it were, uh, according to a set of principles and a set of well-understood and articulated policies. And that's a foundational moment in British political history. And Burke is absolutely the centre practically as well as theoretically of that. Great. Um, and, and of course, uh, th these days we, we often have debate about the, the, the quality of politicians. Um, and uh, but so, some people indeed are quite, quite scathing about the, uh, the, the general quality of, of politicians in Parliament. Um, how many um, how many people in Parliament would you say have read thinkers like Burke or, or, or John Locke or, 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 or Rawls even? And, and if, if the number isn't, isn't so high, does, does that matter? Well, I think a relatively small number of uh, politicians, unless they did PPE or political philosophy as undergraduates, a relatively small number of politicians will have read Burke in the original, or indeed some of the other thinkers that you've mentioned, Locke or Rawls. But that doesn't mean to say they don't have some familiarity with their ideas. And of course, uh, if I can, if you'll forgive me a little plug, anyone who reads my book will get a pretty detailed understanding of uh, his life in the, the middle of the 18th century, but also uh, a, a quite an extended discussion of why his ideas matter, how they cohere and what their kind of fundamental philosophical and practical integrity is. So I think Burke is, uh, remains mandatory reading. Now, it would be good in many ways if more people did read, uh, not enormous amounts of the core political thinkers, uh, not, not because we want all MPs to be brains on sticks and boffins or academic in that debased sense of, of as it were, merely interested in um, uh, ideas, if there was such a thing as being merely interested in ideas. Uh, but we also uh, you know, want our politicians to be, as Burke says, philosophers in action. So we want them to be thinking about these ideas, reflective about these principles, and then bringing them into their own action and using them to make better political arguments. And of course, we also want them to understand a bit more about British political history. And I'll give you a little example. So one of the things that's extraordinary over the last decade or two is how a, a decent understanding of the British Constitution has dropped out of political discourse. So we have people making arguments that reflect basically no understanding of how the British Constitution works at all. So one of the examples of that would be these recent claims made by many politicians that, you know, uh, essentially we have a quasi-presidential system in which Boris Johnson received a personal mandate from uh, 14 million or 20 million voters, however it was, in the last election, 14 million voters, I guess it was, and uh, that somehow licenses him to behave in a presidential way. Well, this is completely ignorant. Um, you know, Boris uh, has, I mean, as a member of parliament, the electors of Uxbridge, and as prime minister, his fellow MPs as his electors, and no one else. And he doesn't have presidential powers. And to pretend that he does is to do incredible violence to the very subtle mechanisms of our constitution. And of course, it's possible to take a kind of, I would say, idiotic Benthamite view and say, well, look, the test of anything purely lies in 
as it were, uh, its utility uh, as measured according to a kind of simple-minded calculus. And uh, it should be subject only to the test of an individual person's reason. And somehow the British Constitution is therefore nonsense on stilts or some other variety of uh, irrelevance or debased thought. And, and of course, that's completely wrong. And actually, what's so interesting is that if we bring some Darwinian tropes in, actually, one way of thinking about the Constitution is that it's the evolved result of uh, an enormous number of interactions across society, institutions, individuals, government over time, and recognizes all of the latent compromises and trade-offs that those interactions have reflected in a more or less free society. And as such encodes both individually at the institutional level and collectively a kind of wisdom that's not available to any individual human being. It's a very Burkean idea. But if you, if you cast the matter in this slightly scientific Darwinian evolution idea, it suddenly becomes possible to understand why there could be a lot of latent wisdom and, of course, that wisdom has never been better demonstrated than in the contrast between the British Constitution now and the American Constitution. The American Constitution is really struggling under the impact of Donald Trump and his unwillingness to uh, ratify or accept the results of the last presidential election. And uh, it's, you know, uh, there are people who think that America is on the brink of divisions that might amount to, you know, the beginnings of an insurrection. And we've seen something of the kind in the capital. But in Britain, the British Constitution has just worked perfectly. It's, uh, it's, it, it allowed um, a, a prime minister to overreach for a long period of time. Uh, it, it gave him the opportunity to um, make changes and show his principles and capabilities uh, he did some very good things in Ukraine and uh, in, as regards COVID, but he also has done some very ill-advised, foolish and uh, actively wrong things. And the constitution has caught up with him and he has been rejected from office in a way that completely unparalleled in 300 years of, uh, as it were, prime ministerial existence by the resignation of 50 of his colleagues. And... That's something that not only has never happened before, but has never been contemplated. British Constitution is working perfectly. and We've moved on to another prime minister. And the fact that prime ministers aren't presidents, they don't have a separate mandate. They are only primus inter pares, first amongst equal in a cabinet system of government, has been validated and its wisdom affirmed yet again. No more Burkean example of the wisdom of our institutions could, I think, be imagined. Yes, of course. And, and the genius of Burke is he sort of anticipates uh, many, many of the points of Darwin. And, and indeed, a recent development is in sociology and anthropology is cultural evolution theory, which is is, is, is really very, very similar to, 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 to Burke's um, insights. Uh, we will talk about um, uh, Boris Johnson's record I mean, in more detail a bit later. But before we get there, I, I wanted to ask um, a bit of a pr provocative question actually um do you think uh, we, we obviously you know rightly we we hear about 
the, the, the need for enlightened and educated MPs. Um, and, and of course, you know, you know, few people would, would, would dispute that. But do you think you can have um, too many, uh, too many educated and intellectual MPs? I mean, indeed, there's a part in reflections. I forget the exact, exact phrase, but there is a part um, where, where Burke is, is, is really quite a bit, a bit scathing about the ability of intellectuals and the enlightened to govern. Yes, let's come on to intellectuals in a second. Let me just pick up a little point you, you glossed uh, in your first part of your question. So w this is really for the academics who may be listening, but there's a very, very interesting uh, new strand of scholarship. There's been a lot of recent interesting scholarship about Burke, but very interesting recent strand of scholarship emphasizing Burke's uh, contributions to political economy. Uh, and so his tie-in to Adam Smith, which is much deeper than has been previously uh, explored, and uh, which is scouted actually both in my book on Burke and in my book on Smith, rather against the scholarly wisdom. I mean, Emma Rothschild's written rather dismissively this idea, and so did the great Donald, late great Donald Winch. Uh, but it turns out that Burke is a much more considerable and uh, more extensive and more thoughtful uh, theorist about political economy, what we would call economics in, in an 18th century sense, uh, uh, than anyone had thought. And Gregory Collins has written a very, very good book on this topic, which I strongly recommend to anyone who is interested and wants to, to, to support it, uh, support their reading further in this area. And so on the issue of intellectuals, uh, it's, it's, very, it's very important just to cut things up in slightly different ways. Um, when we use the word intellectual, we tend to think of it as connoting an absence of capacity to act, uh, an over-reliance on individual reason. And we give it a kind of ivory tower treatment. Now, Burke is uh, uh, a man who would pass anyone's test of intellectual, astonishingly widely read individual. Um, also, as you know, for reasons I've hinted at, discussed, saw himself as a man of action. Burke would not, I think, have deplored the idea that they could be extensively educated and well-read and thoughtful people who had really reflected deeply in politics, in the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and in and around the political arena. But he would have been extremely, and indeed he was, extremely skeptical about this idea that the unaided reason of a human being could be the test of any uh, great policy. And one way to think of his philosophy is that his reflections as informed by instinct and practice and tradition and the very Burkean sense of the word prejudice, which doesn't mean, as it were, bias or racism. It means the, the things you bring to a judgment before you make the judgment out of your experience, your prejudgments, if you like. That accumulation of thought and knowledge that you bring to any particular situation, if you're making a practical decision or an intellectual decision, those things are in themselves a tacitly small c conservative rejection of enlightenment and post-enlightenment ideas of reason, right? So he's saying reason is a much less uh, useful and helpful. He's not resigning, he's not backing off the idea of reason. This is a preeminent enlightenment thinker. He's just saying it's, it's a much more... Uh, it's a it's a it's a much more uh, uh, delicate and um, 
in some respects, uh, questionable attribute of human beings, especially if it's allied to a kind of arrogance about one's own status or the status of one's generation. So the idea that somehow, you know, um, the earth is for the living, which is a kind of uh, enlightenment trope amongst radical uh, thought thinkers, um, Jefferson being a great example of this, uh, is something he would have completely rejected. He thinks that's what happens when people get too big for their boots. They start applying their reason to the world around them. They forget that what they've actually done is to inherit this extraordinarily elaborate, encoded wisdom of society and institutions, and indeed their own instincts and their own, in this Burkean sense, prejudices and experience. And if you give up that instinct and that experience and that inherited understanding, then you're certain to lead yourselves and your friends and your families and presidential your nation into folly. And how right is that? Uh, um, so uh, I, I think a bit of Burkean skepticism about the powers of reason is a very, very useful tonic whenever people think what a good idea it would be to um, you know, invade Iraq um, and bring democracy to um, you know, that part of the world or any of our other many recent individual and collective follies. Yeah, in, in more concrete terms, um, do, do, would you say, are you sympathetic to the argument that there are too many educated MPs in, in the Commons at the, at the moment? And I, I think that's got a, um, a special relevance today for the reason that education is now one, one of the chief political cleavages and education uh, is, is associated with um, particular values, um, specifically quite liberal cultural values, and it, it can mean that certain people are alienated from, from modern politics. I, I think you're using the word education in a way that is provocative. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 what we want in the House of Commons is a very wide range of people who are as well-read, thoughtful, and experienced in the world as uh, they can be, and who have done things uh, and had responsibility, run teams, run budgets, had normal experiences of life, fail sometimes perhaps, as well as succeeding. We want those people because the collective wisdom of the House of Commons comes from the interaction between all those different kinds of experience and knowledge. And if we start saying we don't want too many educated, we do want a lot of educated people, we're importing yeah. all of those elite and class prejudices that Burke, as a rising man from Ireland at a time when you know, the standard view in England was that every Irishman on the mate was after your money or your daughter, um, you know, uh, uh, Burke perfectly incarnates a, a sensible scepticism about the claims of reason and the claims of a certain kind of elite education. Yeah. I'm, I'm personally a Burkean, but I'd call myself a, a, a Burkean social democrat. Um, and from that perspective, I, I, I really can't reconcile, um, firstly, austerity um, with, with, with Burkeanism, but because it involves so much disruption um, to, uh, to social life. And, and secondly, Brexit. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, but because again, it um, it 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 uproots established institutions um, in a way that, that that I think Burke would have found disruptive. Um, so so perhaps you 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 could reflect on on on, on austerity and Brexit. Sure. So you are stepping outside an academic mode yes. by yes. passing judgment on current politics in the way that you have done. Uh, it's interesting that 
there are Burkeans, and I would say specifically small C conservatives across the political spectrum. Uh, mm. Small C conservatism is not something that is only to be associated with the Conservative Party. There's a blue Labour phenomenon. And people like John Crudus and uh, uh, some of uh, Morris Glassman, people like that, who, and, and indeed the Labour Party historically was a very conservative institution. One thinks it's kind of bizarre, but of course it was um, because an awful lot of its members were small C conservative, traditional, family oriented people in communities who had enjoyed a certain way of life, often tied to particular forms of work or companies or um, local industries. And of course they had in many ways, uh, small C conservative instincts. They didn't like spending a lot of money. They didn't like debt. They were very concerned about the queen and the constitution and the national uh, defense and security. Uh, they just happened to vote Labour. So uh, this idea that somehow conservatism is, is only restricted to one side of the political spectrum is just, I think, a mistake. Uh, and and you explain part why. But it's, it's also true that <clears throat> conservatism is a body of thought, and that includes Birkin conservatism, is not a wholly consistent body of thought. And uh, no conservative who ever knew anything about it has pretended it is, and I certainly don't think Burke would pretend it is. So, so Burke famously says that um, circumstance gives to every political principle its uh, distinguishing color and discriminating effect. And what he means by that is that when you are in politics and you're making a decision, uh, it's not that you take a set of principles and you apply them to a context. It is that you have to iterate, you have to reflect on what is the appropriate principle to be applied given the contextual features that you're presented with. And those features may be different from time to time, and they uh, may, and that may mean you have to choose a different principle. And uh, the, so the famous example of this in his own time is his, his, uh, his different reaction to the American Revolution and the French Revolution. So there's a kind of idiotic view which says, well, you know, Burke is hostile to the American Revolution, therefore, you know, the French Revolution is a revolution, we must be hostile to that as well. I think that's a fairly obvious mistake. And the reason for that is because the American Revolution, in Burke's view, is the, uh, is the response by a settled people to a, an arbitrary exercise of power uh, by Imperial Britain uh, in the 1760s and 1770s. And he's defending, in a small conservative way, the freedoms and the, and the way of life and the right to self-determination of those people. He thinks they can be incorporated within an expanded parliament, in fact, but um, that's his broad position. You get to the French Revolution, completely different kind of thing. That is a, uh, that is a, a set of events which have the potential effect of overturning an entire society and setting aside or destroying all of the traditions and all of the history and all of the institutions associated with that uh, society. It's, it's a totalizing, wipe the slate clean eradication. And no conservative could ever support an eradication because an eradication precisely is the cutting off of something from its roots. And Burke thinks that individuals and institutions really can only flourish if they are not uh, extremely individualistic. That is to say, they're not atoms cut off from each other, but also 
atoms cut off from their roots, and that that's just a genuinely mistaken way of thinking about human beings. And again, I think he's right about that. So to come to your point, uh, I, I, I'm not by any means uh, sure that Burke would have agreed with your characterization of the events in 2010 as austerity. I remember very vividly the Chancellor of uh, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, that is to say, the Finance Minister of uh, Germany, Wolfgang Schäuble, saying, uh, uh, "Look, what you call austerity, we call sensible financial management." Uh, and there's no doubt, as both political main political parties realised, that the crisis of 2008 required. Uh, a sensible management uh, uh, and an attempt to return slowly over time to something like fiscal control and uh, of the of the budget, and that's what the 2010 government uh, attempted to do. So to call it austerity is already to have taken a very strong political position against it, and I don't think one that Burke would have accepted. In the case of Brexit, uh, one can make a Burkean argument either way, and this is in the nature of conservatism, because there's always going to be a, a, a latent tension between appeals to freedom and appeals to, uh, uh, as it were, a settled, established state of affairs. And uh, so a Birkin could say, well, look, you know, the European Union uh, uh, membership has been part of Britain for 40 years, it would be an extreme disruption to overturn that. A Birkin could also say um, uh, it was perfectly clear now, or what is perfectly clear now, what was not clear when we first joined, which is that the EU um, has become a political project. And the effect of the political project will be to destroy, over time, the basis of the nation state in Britain. And the destruction of that basis is, the, is a cutting away, is an eradication of... Uh, human beings' allegiance to um, probably the, the most dominant self-understanding they have, that is themselves as Englishmen or Britons or Scotsmen or Northern Irish. And so you can make that argument both ways. And I think it's an unresolved aspect of it. But I don't think, and I don't think Burke, as a, as a the multifarious thinker he was, could, or indeed Smith, could very obviously have been placed on either side of that uh, divide. What I think we can say without any doubt at all is that Burke would have deplored the way in which the decision to take the to, to take forward Brexit through the referendum was reached, because he would have thought, I'm sure, that that reflected a very um, ill-advised and unthinking process of uh, social choice, and that there were many things that the government could have done that would have made that social choice uh, more palatable, more acceptable, more enduring, more effective. Uh, and that it, it didn't do. And I, I think you'd have been right about that. And it is, in fact, true. OK, that, that's really interesting. And indeed, there's a part of reflections in, in, in which Burke says that counter-revolution would, would be justified in France, would, would, which comes to mind, actually. So, so it very much depends on the... Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't over-lean on, on counter-revolution. I mean, but Burke in 1790 is uh, uh, in a mounting state of alarm Mm. And, um, you know, it, it is consistent with Burkean view that a, a, a very a deeply fundamental threat to one's way of life should be resisted with extreme vigour. And that's the position he gets to with quite a lot of asperity and impatience and I think violence and some, I mean, you know, violence of language and, 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 and actually unhappiness. 
um, three or four years later, when the French Revolution is well underway. But by the time of the reflections, he can just, he, the, the, the extraordinary prophetic aspect of his mind can lean, uh, can look forward and see that these things that other people are expecting to lead to benign constitutional change are actually unleashing a wild, mad mob demon, which is going to take the whole structure of society down with it. And of course, and, and ultimately lead to uh, dictatorship. Yeah. And as it, of course, does with, um, I mean, in a way, Napoleon wouldn't have called himself a dictator, but in the, in the true sense, he was. And he, he then, as it were, became an emperor on the back of that. But Burke's, Burke's foresight was astounding, but it does give a particular tenor and feel to his writings in the reflections. And it anticipates this, this much more, um, much more worried and anxious texts of his, of his last years. Great, that's really interesting. Uh, thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about something else now. Uh, in academia, probably one of the dominant uh, themes over the last decade in the social sciences uh, has been a crisis of confidence in our findings. There have been things like the replication crisis. There have been a, a, a series of as the developments um, in, in involving basically uh, these the, the sort of the problem that, that we're really not sure what, what what the effect of policy interventions is is going to be um and um people who, people who follow my my, my blog will, will have seen i wrote, wrote an essay on that uh, a, a few weeks ago and so i, I wanted to, to ask you but because you're perfectly placed um as as, as an academic and, and a politician to answer this um first of all uh, are these developments uh, get, getting through to parliament is, is there a broad awareness of of these issues among, among some Policymakers, I think there's certainly an awareness amongst the more scientifically minded MPs and mm. policymakers, and of course the civil service, that the effect of the inability to replicate academic findings is casting a lot of doubt on different uh, evidential bases for a certain amount of policy, and of course it has a it has a it has a knock on effect which is that it starts to discredit some of the pillars of scientific practice and therefore potentially by implication, the enterprise of doing science itself. And that's an extremely corrupting potential further overlap. So you find, and of course, when you combine that with social media, you, know, you get a lot of people who think of themselves as experts or market themselves as experts, for example, thinking about talking about vaccines, uh, you know, who are perfectly happy to use um, uh, problems in replicating academic papers to justify a general anti-rationalism. Anti now, from Burkean standpoint, uh, two things I suppose are worth noting. One is a, a general skepticism about the powers of reason is absolutely foundational to understanding Burke. Um, so he wouldn't be surprised about this at all. Uh, and and of course, the codicil to that is or the counterpart to that is, is that he he is uh, I mentioned thinks that there's always a relationship between principle and context. So small changes of context may mean, and of course the scientific may mean changes in outcome. And so it may be that some of these replication problems are just traceable to inadequate controls, failures on 
of, of to manage context effectively. But more deeply, he is extremely skeptical about attempts to use science as a yardstick for human action. And he thinks the, the social sciences attempts to reduce reasons and the intelligent thinking agent to or agency, if you like, to an agency to, to causes and to processes that are ultimately supposedly reducible in turn to a kind of mathematical analysis, quantification, and um, calculation, he would be extremely skeptical about that. Now, that doesn't say it can't be done, just to say, you, you know, you're likely to be importing logical error whenever you do this. And that's a tradition that goes back to Aristotle. You'll find it in physics book six in Aristotle. So that's not exactly a, a new uh, idea, but it is a, an idea that Burke gives extremely pungent and effective expression to. And by the way, the same is true for Adam Smith. I mean, Smith deplores the uh, uh, putative certainties of the physiocrats. He says, you know, it'd be impossible to uh, make any action, either as a doctor or as, a, uh, uh, or as someone in making policy and political economics, if you felt that everything only operated according to a certain, uh, as it were, um, standard derived from the ma mathematical uh, reflection or, or from the sciences. And nothing of that kind could happen. And therefore, there, there has to be scope for uh, uh, judgment, tacit knowledge, and um, uh, evolved interactive um, and individual reflective behavior in, in judging human action. And uh, again, I think that's an old idea, which perhaps could be revisited with some value by people who think of themselves as doing science in the social sciences, but really aren't. Yes, that's fascinating. Um, I, I don't uh, always like agree with people, but, but, but I, I think we agree that there, there's certainly a Burkean perspective to do this, this problem in, in that uh, greater uncertainty. Uh, should should lead policymakers, you know, to think about the the, the value of established um, in, in institutions and established ways of doing things, and the the, the need for for wisdom as well from from from. Yeah, that's a, that's a word that goes with it, right? So, wisdom you, you can be ineducated, um, and you can be uninformed, and yet also wise. Mm, great. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I, I regret to say I, I agree entirely with, with you on that, not that, that point. What a wise man you are, Thomas. Ah, I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but but will I end um, on, on, on a light-hearted, but, but I guess serious note as well? Um, uh, were Burke alive today, would he vote for Sunak or Truss? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, uh, it is a parlour game, isn't it? And we could construct arguments on all sides of the... Uh, equation. Uh, I, 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 I have no idea which way he would have voted, and there's no necessary way of saying. Again, it, it kind of encodes the point I was making about different political principles. So he, he, I, I think, uh, you know, the the uh, attempt to impose some level of budgetary constraints. Uh, 
the the recognition that the mess we're in because of the war and the after effects of COVID and the rise in inflation mean that the least well off have got to be protected in some form or other. Uh, a skepticism about whether markets are working as well as they should do. A feeling that at some point uh, we've got to get back to business as usual and allow people to operate uh, in, in a way that means they can be successful and effective in their own lives, in their own businesses, in their own families. So all those are principles that he would have been, that he would be supportive. And they're in some contradiction and tension. And that's out of that tension. You know, you've seen it in the, in the debates that the two candidates have been having. And you've seen it in the positions that they've taken, some of which have been reversals of previous positions or have had to be reversed themselves. And that's because these issues are incredibly context sensitive and uh, they're not reducible to simple uh, principles or prognostications of a kind that could be written down on a bit of paper or circulated as a, uh, as a piece of ideological, uh, uh, as it were, tweeting or tract making. And, and, and all of that's actually, in a way, intensely Burkean um, in itself. It's just not a process by which one could say with any certainty that he would support one side uh, or the other. I, I think he would be... Um, I think I think he would be, as I've said, and just to return to the point where we started, he would be as alive to the philosophical need to establish some principles and, and direction as he would be to the practical need to provide succor and support as a working politician and to maintain public legitimacy and accountability, uh, because those are all things that he had to wrestle with and deal with in under no less difficult times himself. I mean, when the rocking Whigs came to power in 1765, it was in the middle of the crisis over the Stamp Act, you know, and you had a potential to, you know, loss of the colonies in prospect and, you know, and then in due course, war. And so, you know, he didn't, those were the war in which Britain was actually directly involved itself at tremendous cost. So these are, it's not as though his own time wasn't full of issues that were in their own way, at least as bad as the ones we're confronting today. Sure, that, that's fascinating. Uh, thank you ever so much for, for, for joining me today, Jesse. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think uh, the well, the, the, the well, I, I was a convert before the, uh, the this podcast, but um, I, I think the conclusion is that Burke matters. Um, dare, dare I say more than ever? Perhaps I think that's right, and I thank you very much for giving us a chance to discuss it today. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you ever so much. And do remember uh, also to buy uh, Jesse's book on Burke, which is a fascinating read. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that, please think about subscribing to Tom's Curiosity Shop. It's free.